1: Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and maybe the best song from the musical Hamilton was The Room Where It Happens. At least, I really liked that song because it had this great passage that really describes the situation when you're an insider in politics. The passage is, no one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. We just assume that it happens but no one else is in the room where it happens. Well, there are actually some people in the room where it happens. One of those people, one of those key insiders who's actually been there, helped drive decisions and seen history unfold as it's unfolding is Jim Manley. He's a 21 year veteran of the U.S. Senate. He worked for Senator Ted Kennedy, Leader Harry Reid, when he was the leader of the Democrats in the Senate. And he goes all the way back even to Maine Senator George Mitchell. He has been literally in the room where it happens. He is now a strategist, a consultant. He puts strategist in air quotes when he puts it on his Twitter bio, but he is a strategist. He is someone who people turn to for strategy to understand how to navigate and get decisions made in those rooms where it happens. Jim, welcome to Beyond Politics. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Well, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you. And look, people, what's funny is the, the lyric that I just quoted is, no one really wants to know how the sausage gets made. I think the opposite is true. People really do like getting the perspective of a, how the sausage is getting made, and B, like what's what's really going on there and 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 what's what's happening behind the scenes. I, I want to kind of start at a high level based on your experience. You're you're a communications professional. You kind of hit that sweet spot between policy and legislative maneuvering and how we talk about it and messaging and, and communicating. So let's talk about what's been going on in the Senate recently, the the big impasse for Democrats has kind of centered around Joe Manchin and his unwillingness to go along with a reconciliation bill, kind of the only way to get around the filibuster in the Senate, we could talk more about that later, to go along with a reconciliation bill that would include a larger list of Democratic Party priorities, President Joe Biden's priorities, and instead he's been insisting on uh, maybe let's not let's not do anything or maybe let's do something really, really narrow that addresses just one or two priorities. So here's the big question. Is Joe Manchin destroying the Democrats agenda or is he saving the Democrats from themselves?
0: Well, I, I mean,
1: I guess to be charitable,
0: I think that he thinks that he's trying to save the Democratic Party. But as far as I'm concerned, with all my biases, he's doing everything he can to try and undermine the Democratic agenda and the Biden administration for reasons I really can't quite understand. Uh, a- after all, his constituents, the people of West Virginia, would benefit tremendously from a lot of the programs that have been dropped during these months of negotiations. So he, I don't, you're talking about the sausage being made. So on the one hand, I don't envy Senator Schumer and the rest of the Democrats. Democratic leadership, or their inability to handle center mansion, but there's got to be a better way. But just quite frankly, I haven't figured it out yet.
1: Mm. It's it presents kind of. I, I was saying a moment ago that you, when in, in your time on the hill, you sat at that sweet spot, right? There's there's always yep. a consideration of here's what we kind of want to do, and that's where people really don't want to know the sausages. like no one really cares about the wonky legislative details, except
0: me. Like I'm, I'm I've kind of seen a policy things guy. that I don't ever want to repeat on <laughs> radio, Matt. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm going to press you for that though. I, I want, I want your best <laughs> stories. Don't get me wrong, but look da- down in the weeds, people don't really want to think about that, but legislative staff, like actual legislators and, and their staffers do need to think about those things. They do need to think about the actual, impact of the policies they want to pass, and then they turn to professionals like you to say, can we like make this work politically? Can we sell this? And so uh, there a contention has been made by experts like Ben Ritz of the Progressive Policy Institute, previous guest on this show, that we've kind of been messing up reconciliation all along, that we were trying to make it too much of a Christmas tree, too many priorities, too many little ornaments here and there, and what we really should have done is kind of what Joe Manchin is doing now, narrow it down, if for nothing else than for messaging purposes, so that we could explain to people what the heck is in it. Now, Ben's contention was this should have been kids and COVID all along. Just, just keep it focused on child care and fighting COVID. That's something that Americans can understand. So let me ask you, what do you make of kind of the broad contention that you really do need to be thinking about the messaging up front, front and center in, when you put together complicated legislation like that. Is that something you buy and that you do? Oh, absolutely. And for what it's worth, I've never met Ben, but I
0: read everything he writes. I'm a big fan of this. And I mean, to a degree, I think he's largely right. Here's the way I would describe it. I don't blame the administration and House and, Democratic, House and Senate Democrats for easing the moment last year and trying to swing for the fences, if you will, and trying to get as much done. If I'm sitting at the table advising the leadership in those early months, I would have said it would have been very problematic to try and cut a small deal early that the base, a lot of Democrats would have been very with them for going back to the same old, same old years past. But at some point last year, in July or August, it should have been very evident to everyone involved, including the leadership and the White House, that it was never going to fly. A $6 trillion bill, as proposed by Senator Sanders, was ne- or a $4 trillion bill, as proposed by President Biden, for that matter, was never going to fly. And at some point, folks needed to adjust accordingly, trim the package, and try and figure out what exactly can get through the Senate. And unfortunately, they never did. And so again, to go back to messaging, so what we've seen since September is one self-inflicted blow after another delivered against Democrats. Uh, Democrats becoming dispirited, a lot of anger directed towards Center Mansion and to a lesser degree center cinema, obviously. <laughs> and overall a, a bad operating environment for Democrats as they're trying to sell themselves to the public heading into the November 22 elections. Having said that, to be the good news is, as the Washington Post is reporting this morning, it may be a little bit difficult for reasons I can explain, but in the next two weeks, the administration and in House and Senate Democrats are going to get a couple wins. I was always, some Democrats aren't going to be happy. They're not going to get the win they've been ho- hoping for, including, for instance, Senator Klobuchar has been pushing an antitrust bill, a bill that I think is a good idea, but it's never going to get done in the Senate in the next couple of weeks. But there is a chance, no, strike that. There's a very good chance in the next couple of weeks, they're going to get a bill, focus on a couple of key priorities, including aid to the chip manufacturing industry to try and promote jobs in the economy here in the country, and also some expanded uh, Obamacare subsidies, healthcare subsidies, at least for another two years, and also paid for with some provisions designed to try and uh, take some money out of the
1: healthcare system. I... I Actually, since you invoked Obamacare, I'm just, I'm going to put that in the parking lot because I'm about to ask you in a moment to reach back into your into your memory about that very fraught negotiation and kind of this, this intersection of, of messaging and communications on the one hand and policy. There's bad and, and, and flashbacks,
0: Matt. Legislative, okay. yeah. I'm, that's
1: why I'm warning you. That's why I'm doing you the preview that yeah. you're about to have a bad trip. But I, I just, I, I want to follow up more immediately on this notion that democrats have gotten really down in the mouth and it's kind of crazy i got i wrote an article back in the beginning of january where i and look this was provocatively titled but whatever i got a lot of pushback online about this and i said biden's first year grade is an a plus and any other answer is insane now my contention there was you've got a grade on the curve of We were as a country careening over the edge of a cliff in a car that was on fire, and now we're not. So everything else is commentary, right? Like Joe Biden saved us from that. So A plus, you you get first year, you get an A plus. But from a substantive standpoint, you also can make a pretty strong case that what has been accomplished under President Biden is pretty remarkable. The American Rescue Plan had an enormous impact I mean, look no further than lifting 3 million American children out of poverty. And then you have the infrastructure plan, which was sort of the white whale long sought after by President Trump and presidents before him that Joe Biden got accomplished, that accomplishes an awful lot on the climate agenda that Democrats are now bemoaning. So I guess my question to you is, have Democrats kind of gotten themselves into the mental trap, the, the the negative view that we have of this current administration, have, have we dragged ourselves there of our own volition? Are we, are we kind of the victims of our own insanely raised expectations? And there's sort of a good news version of the story that we're sort of failing to tell?
0: Yeah. Yes, is the answer. And I will, if I'm being honest uh, on your show, I'm going to, uh, someone who watches the ins and outs of Congress very closely. I'm going to have to plead guilty along with a whole heck of a lot of other people. Yeah. I mean, it's, yes, he has, he and Democrats have got a lot of wins so far, not as much as they want, but they've gotten some good wins, which is why to go back to my, what I suggested earlier, which is why the last six to eight months or so have been so unfortunate expectations were raised so high. I, 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 i I'd listed a series of numbers a couple of minutes ago. I should uh, remind everyone that actually it started with Congresswoman AOC uh, demanding a $10 trillion package. Senator Sanders came in at $6 trillion, and then the president came in at $4 trillion. And again, expect, expectations were raised very high, despite the fact that, A, the ne- filibuster was never going to be eliminated, and B, Senator Mansion and Center Cinema were never going to vote for and so in spite of all that, Democrats spent months and months in, in largely fruitless negotiations with those two senators, without realizing that nothing they had, nothing they were going to be able to negotiate over was going to, ever going to get done. So, anyways, and, and so that's why I, I, I get so frustrated as to uh, over how this thing's played out, because again, we do have a story to tell. I'd urge your listeners to check the Washington Post to uh, read the story if they're interested. But yes, we were uh, we overpromised and uh, didn't deliver everything that some leaders had suggested they were going to get done.
1: Well, now I've got to drag you back to the to the period that perhaps we should not name because you really were there, part of the leadership team at least on the staff level, when mm-hmm. we sort of experienced something very similar. Before there were the early in President Obama's term, there were protracted negotiations over what the stimulus bill that became ARA, the American Relief and Reinvestment, whatever that stood okay. for, over what the substance of that would be, and whether we could get any agreement from Republicans on it. And we kind of got strung along and strung along there. And then we got deep into what became the uh, the ACA, Obamacare, and that strung out. And what's really remarkable about it is that you see this pattern with any new enacted large scale program in the federal government. Americans tend to not like these things initially. And over time, as they become used to them and then it becomes something that's part of their lives, they support them more and more. And maybe that was always going to be the case with Obamacare. But I mean, it really is a classic case study in sort of that clash between how you're going to communicate politically about something very complicated and very important. And what you're going to do legislatively in terms of policy and, and the impact of policy. So what do you remember? What do you what stands out to you about that period when those details were getting negotiated and you were trying to figure out how on earth are we going to talk about all of this as the 2010 cycle and, and the disaster it turned out to be was sort of looming in front of you?
0: Yeah, a couple different things. First of all, I've always gone back and forth over. Which was the harder bill for Senator Reid to pull off? The Economic Recovery Act and or Obamacare. Because, again, I saw things in those negotiations that I never want to see again. Let's put it that way. It was so tough to get Republicans on board with the Economic Recovery Act. It was just some of the stuff. Boy, it was tough, number one. Number two. To be clear, it was a little bit different then in that we had more Democratic votes then than we do now. I I mean, as much as I'd like to criticize the Senate Democratic leadership sometimes, the fact of the matter is we're dealing in a narrowly divided Senate where any one senator, he or she, can be the kingmaker or queenmaker. During the early Obama years, we never really had a filibuster-proof margin, though some Republicans suggest that, given the health issues regarding Senator Byrd and my former boss Senator Kennedy, for that matter, but there too, you know, we had what's the, what's similar uh, in both situations. We had a, a, a Republican leader and Senator McConnell that was trying to do everything he could to undermine. Uh, a democratically elected president what's different between then and now again is that the margins were slightly different it gave us a little bit more of a cushion though not the 60 votes necessary to get through a republican filibuster it was a tough tough time the economy was in a free fall obviously all the energy or not obviously because there was a debate within the caucus about which to focus on economic recovery obamacare but in the end it was decided we were going to do take some basic steps to prop up the economy and then we're going to pivot to try and pass a, you know, as sweeping a health care bill as possible. Of course, what happened is that at different times, a handful of senators, including Senator Ben Nelson and Senator Joe Lieberman, kept on throwing monkey wrenches into the process. You're asking me about messaging. <laughs> My biggest challenge was trying to protect Senator Nelson and Senator Lieber, Lieberman to the uh, extent possible from the progressive press in particular, hammering those guys six ways a Sunday. Why? Because Senator Reid correctly told me repeatedly that he needed those guys to get anything done. And of course, he was right. Didn't necessarily appreciate it, but he was right. And the, the bloggers, uh, as we call them at that point in time, they were going after those guys, those two in particular, Hammer and Tong, trying to take them down. It was, And it was my job to protect them to the
1: extent possible. I really do want to pick up on, on that idea that what's so hard for Democrats is kind of, what's the old, I belong to no organized party, I'm a Democrat. And it seems like from before the time, I was a a senior staffer on the Hill. Democrats have been in search of some kind of a cohesive message, something. I remember the process we went through in 2004. Boy, was that bad, and the the outcome was bad. Anyway, you know, and so it, it does seem like an ongoing challenge for Democrats is trying to get some cohesion between the left flank and sort of the center flank. So Jim, you were saying a moment ago that one of the biggest challenges you faced in trying to navigate the negotiations around Obamacare back in 2009 and 2010 was trying to keep the progressive wing of the Democratic Party from absolutely savaging the more centrist members like Senator Ben Nelson, Senator Joe Lieberman. There's a parallel there, obviously, to what we're seeing today. After the 2018 midterms, there was a real dust up between more centrist members of the House like Abigail Spanberg and Connor Lamb, and more left-leaning progressive or Democratic Socialist people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The centrist says, said essentially, hey, you know what? You guys are absolutely killing us with your god-awful slogans like defund the police and kind of branding the whole party as a bunch of woke lunatics who just want to let criminals rampage through our cities. And the response from AOC was, "Eh, you guys aren't really campaigning, right? You don't understand social media. The problem isn't us. It's your own campaigns. First of all, is there any way that Democrats can do what you tried to skillfully do a dozen years ago and sort of knit this together and and, and stop killing each other before the, the, the next round of elections? And second of all, where do you come down on this? Are, do progressives own some of the blame here for the Democratic Party's brand problem? Oh, boy, those
0: two great questions.
1: Yeah, and I stacked them on you, the so I'm, I'm really hitting you yeah. a lot.
0: Yeah, first of all, we'll take them one at a time. Yes, I think I am hoping, uh, as I suggested earlier with the next couple of bills that Democrats are about to pass in the Senate, try and heal some of the wounds and we can move forward united towards the elections in November number two let's take a step back so as you suggested earlier I work for the late the Senator Kennedy one of the greatest legislators I would suggest in this century or any other a real master of the legislative process he knew how to get things done one thing he taught me was that compromise is not a dirty word if you have to, take a half a loaf, and then you can continue to work on getting the additional rest of the loaf at a later time. That art, if you will, that mindset, that ethos, that's been lost in the set. And in both parties, compromise is seen as a dirty word. You're a traitor to the party, and it's just bad all, all, all around. And I, I, I think that's a mistake. And I, I get the idea that if a progressive's are tapping into some real problems out, out there, but again, I'll plead guilty to this. But I'm a Senate guy, and I look at the Senate. And so, if you if you're telling me, well, then the the answer to all this is to eliminate the filibuster. My initial response is great. How are you going to do that? You don't have the votes to do it. Um, and until you do have the votes, it's all talk, and it's pretty cheap talk, quite frankly. So. And then the other thing, of course, is that the Senate's broken. And Senate Republicans, and one man in particular, Senator uh, McConnell, broke it. If you take a look at the, uh, the number of filibusters over the years, it's been going up exponentially, starting in the late 1980s, There's, uh, starting in the late 1990s, and through the early 2000s. All of a sudden, it was filibuster on steroids where 60 votes were required for everything. Now, you may not like it. But until you figure out a way to get around that, you gotta try and deal with the reality as it is. And it's yeah, same as it ever was. The House can, under the rules of the House, look, Speaker Pelosi, boy, this is gonna get me in trouble, but Speaker Pelosi, in one way, has easiest job around, okay? She wakes up every morning knowing that she can get a a majority of votes. She's just gotta figure out how to do it. And under the rules, of the house majority dominates everything and if you get the votes you can get anything done and the senate under the current rules of the senate where 60 votes is required it requires compromise and some folks still haven't figured out that to get anything done you're going to have to compromise to get it out of the senate
1: i really want to pick up on we'll, well you know what we'll we'll a parking lot another thing that you just said here because i want to turn back to how the senate got broken and who broke it because it's it's controversial and it it republicans make a case that they want to point the finger at your former boss and i'm sure you have some very strong feelings about that but i, I just want to reach back even a moment further to to what you just said because i do think it is interesting we had john yarmouth the house budget committee chairman on our show a few months ago. And he was very candid. First of all, he had a lot to say about Mitch McConnell, who he shares a delegation with. But second of all, it's a great episode. I commend it to people. But he had a very interesting insight into the budget process behind the scenes and some of the clash between the progressive wing and the centrist wing, the more moderate wing, I guess you could put it in the Democratic Party. And he said, look, part of what you're seeing is a generational clash. You're seeing some of these younger activist steeped legislators, members of Congress coming in, and a lot of them don't come from backgrounds in state legislatures, which are sort of traditional training grounds for coming to Congress. And so they don't have the experience of doing what you just said, Ted Ted Kennedy taught, which is Let's negotiate, let's compromise, let's take half a loaf. And because they don't have that in their experience and in their toolkit, their approach is, let's not negotiate against ourselves, let's take the maximalist approach to, here is everything that we want, here's AOC's $10 trillion reconciliation bill, and let's advocate for that. And as you say, anything that falls short of that is sort of not only a a failure and an apostasy, but to some degree is a catastrophe. And he had a very charitable take on that, which was, look, I understand, they'll get it, let them let them kind of mature in, in the process and come along. And it just, it kind of connects to a question I wanted to put to you. On last week's Beyond Politics show, we were talking about the contention that's been in the media recently that both parties need to generationally turn the page, that both parties, their leadership has simply gotten too old. We're run by a gerontocracy, and we need fresh blood. You're certainly seeing that debate happening at the presidential level. I'm not going to talk about this specifically when it comes to the president. That's a that's a fraught discussion that I, I, I don't I don't even want to do it. But I want to talk about the more general proposition because my yep. concern is that. The, the rush to say, hey, let's, let's have a new generation of leadership. What we see in this generation of political leadership is people who have come up in this current era of hyper-polarization, of really kind of the, the clash of the extremes, and that the way to go is to take that maximalist position and drive it as hard as you can and say that the other side is Satan. And I worry about losing some of the, the wisdom of, of the earlier generation and some of the, the leaders who, like you, were steeped in a different mode of working with people. I mean, you and I worked on the Hill at a time where my first job on the Hill was for the House Appropriations Committee. There were staffers who had worked for Democrats, and then when Republicans took over the House, they just kept their jobs and they started working for Republicans. You could still do that at that time. No way you can do that kind of thing nowadays. So, all right, that was a long wind up to a question to you. What do you make about this generational question in general for both parties? Are we losing the art of compromise, working together, finding some kind of a path forward between the parties that used to be more prevalent in our politics?
0: Yeah, interesting. I hadn't
1: quite thought about this
0: issue in that particular way. And you make a lot of good points. But the reason why I haven't really thought about it in that way, we're losing talent is that I have a bottom line belief, and that we as Democrats have done a spectacularly poor job of grooming uh, the next generation of leaders. Mm. And we are paying that price right now. I I mean, I love uh, the House leadership folks. I used to know uh, the three top ones pretty well, but it pains me to have to say this, but all should have stepped down much earlier to try and get some new blood in there. It's a fine line, obviously, but between experience and young blood, and you got to figure out how to split the difference, but in the House in particular, it's pretty bad. Yes, the spe- this speaker is going to go down. One of the greatest speakers in the history, this institution, both Leader Hoyer and Leader Fireburn are doing a fantastic job, but it, it's just too much. I'm sorry, but it's just too much at this point in time. And, and the problem, as, you're, as you may, may or may not be familiar with, is that the problem in recent years has been the following dynamic. None of these, none of those three are going to step down until the other two step down. None of them are going to step down on their own. And so we've got this process where every two years there's whispers about potential challengers, but it always flames out. So we'll see what happens at this point in time. But again, I am prepared. I am prepared to say that we've done a poor job. Now, as to your other point, I mean... I'm against term limits, I guess, uh, for the reasons you just suggested. And I'm big fan of the idea that with uh, years in office comes experience to be able to figure out new and uh, different ways to try and get around problems because you've seen them before. I mean, there aren't a lot of new problems in, the, in Congress, uh, except for maybe the fact that everything's partisanship on steroids. We've seen a lot of this stuff before. It just requires... The experience is necessary to try and figure out how to get around them.
1: Well, Jim Clyburn actually had a tremendous answer to the question of whether he's too old. And uh, when he was on the show a few months ago, so I urge people: if you haven't subscribed yet, why don't you subscribe to Beyond Politics and go back in the feed? Check out the Jim Clyburn episode. It was it was kind of a hilarious answer. But all right, time to again go back to the parking lot. This is a question that's sure to enrage you. Here we go. Let's talk filibuster for a second and who broke the Senate, because you made the case. And by the way, John Yarmuth also made the case that Mitch McConnell broke the Senate. And it's a pretty strong case, but there's a counter argument. The counter argument goes something like this. Back in 2013, frustrated by Senate Republicans blockade of then President Obama's judicial nominees, Harry Reid, Changed the filibuster rules so that they would not apply to federal judgeships below the Supreme Court level. And that allowed him and President Obama to get a bunch of judges confirmed. That's good. Then, when Republicans took over the Senate, Mitch McConnell said, Well, since you went there and you broke down that barrier, I'm going to get rid of the filibuster on judges at the Supreme Court level, too, which led to when we had President Trump getting. The McConnell maneuver, Eric Garland got shanked, and then we had three Trump-appointed Supreme Court justices, and now here we are. So what do you make of that argument that it's really Harry Reed who opened the door yeah. to our broken Senate, the 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 erosion of the filibuster, and, and kind of some kind of some kind of sense of sanity around? Appointing judges, and I guess I, I no, I'll leave it there. I'm not going to stack a follow-up. Yeah, a couple
0: different things. First of all, I will on I can honestly say I can honestly tell your readers that I will go to my grave believing the following: if you don't think if you didn't think that Senator McConnell would would have changed the rules moments notice if he needed to around that same era, you need to get your head examined because you're not paying attention to what's going on. Number one, number two, on a more thoughtful answer is the following. So some of the broader context for what you, for that for Senator Reed's actions are the following, and I alluded to this earlier. At some point in the early 90s, Republicans started weaponizing the filibuster and put it on steroids. Everything that Democrats tried to take to the Senate floor, it was met by a filibuster. Starting on day one, hell. Starting before President Obama became president, Republicans had already agreed that they were going to do everything they could to undermine the president, despite the, f- the fact that the economy was in a free fall and folks were looking for help. Senator McConnell famously said it was his goal make Obama a one term president. That's fine, that's politics. But again, so if you look at, the, if you pull out the handy CRS, uh, Congressional Research Service statistics, you'll see an exp- exponential rise in filibusters under Republican leadership. And so, and then in 2013, Senator Reid was, what am I trying to say? He was facing a situation where Republicans were filibustering some key nominees for key court districts, and that's when he decided to execute the so-called nuclear option. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret, and your readers as know, some have suggested that Senator Reid made that decision quickly, but I don't think that's necessarily right. Uh, he started having conversations about this after he became a democratic leader. He had his freshmen arguing repeatedly with him that you needed to, they're already frustrated in the Senate. They needed to eliminate the filibuster. And so it was actually a long drawn out debate that went all the way back to 2007 or so, yeah, 2007 or so. And it just. And it took him a while, in part because he needed to get his comfortable with actually doing it. And it took until 2013 with some of the so-called old bulls, Senator Harkin, Senator Levin in particular, that had concerns about eliminating the filibuster. But it it is true that once he got them on board, that's when he executed it. And the rest is history. But again, I I, I can honestly
1: say... uh, Because the argument, the argument is... If we give I I, look, first of all, I agree with your with your contention that anyone who thinks, oh, Mitch McConnell would never have eliminated the filibuster for judicial nominees if Harry Reid hadn't done it at a lower level first should have their head examined. That's I I mean, if we we, it's just it's a it's a very provable proposition. You're right, but. I mean, there is a little a little hint of an argument there of like, well, we're giving an excuse. We let them muddy the waters. We're just we're just opening the door. So what do you make of it now? Like there, there's still an argument of like, if you could get Mansion and cinema to agree for just even a narrow issue like protecting democracy or, or any climate, any other issue, you should do it. What do you make of that? I mean, it, it, have we reached that point where if we had the opportunity to end the filibuster in in any way, we should go ahead and do it? Well, I'm still
0: somewhat ambivalent, so I'll take the chicken way out and I'll say that if uh, Democrats decide to do it, I will support them. I am st- I, I have been concerned. I'm and, and still concerned about what's going to be down the pike if that happens. The, the example I've always used is abortion, and it's now even more relevant now. You can't possibly look at the Supreme, the current makeup of the, the Supreme Court. Well, actually, my, this is no longer operative because they've already undermined abortion. I haven't thought about it like that. So, I mean, so the Supreme Court is not going to protect your right to an abortion. And so that is gone. So the question is, what do you do? You don't have that protection anymore. But unfortunately, we may, at worst, we, we are facing a, re, a retaliatory tit-for-tat. Every two years, the party in power changes if the Republicans eliminate the filibusters. And that will depend on whether McConnell's got the votes. But there is a downside, and one that he has been concerned about, and the smarter Republicans have been concerned about, is that some of the stuff being discussed is wildly unpopular, including abortion, including efforts to eliminate gay de- marriage, et cetera, et cetera. So McConnell always liked to have the filibuster in place because it would protect his party and his, and or at least his Senate Republican caucus, at least those that weren't totally crazy, from having to take goats on issues that were wildly unpopular. So whether that changes or not remains to be seen. But again, we'll see what happens next year. Quite frankly, I believe that there's at least a pretty good chance that Democrats are going to be able to heat the Senate, in part because Republicans have nominated a couple of right-wing whack jobs that I think are probably destined to lose in November because they're so toxic.
1: Well, that's a really and, interesting uh, angle that you introduce here. I hadn't thought about it that way either, which is, Mitch McConnell has a greater interest in maintaining the filibuster because they have unpopular yeah. positions that there would be no democratic back, I, I mean small d democratic backlash yeah. to democrats actually enacting the things that they want to enact. McConnell needs to like he can't let his crazies do what they actually want to do. Uh, let me get you out of here on this because we're we're winding down. Give me your best Ted Kennedy or Harry Reid story. You told an absolutely fantastic one to Politico. You could repeat it here if you want about Harry Reid's tough relationship with former President Bush and his characterization to his face about his (laughs) dog. You could you could repeat that or pick, pick another one. What's your what's what's your best story from one of those two Senate legends? Well, boy, you really put me on a
0: spot on this one, Matt. First of all, working for Senator Kennedy was an incredible honor. He was, as I suggested earlier, one of the greatest legislators in the history of the Senate, going to go down with the great. But working for him was really, really tough, and he did not suffer fools easily, but it was tolerable because uh, he worked really hard himself. Once he got the clear to go home, uh, he'd go home and he'd devour his briefing books mark them all up and the staff would have to review them the next day. So many stories from both. But one of the, I I, I guess one in particular is that, so at some point when I was working for Senator Kennedy as its press secretary, I I started getting a little bit of stature and I was kind of a, I was a go-to for reporters to call. And so that put me in a tough position because I was, tr- my goal was to never get, uh, uh, to avoid getting quoted in the press. And, but it, it, at some point I had to, if I was going to serve him effectively, be as a good resource for reporters. And so one time I got quoted by name in I, one of the Massachusetts newspapers. And so I got a call one morning saying from the secretary saying, Jim, the center wants to see you. So, so I hustled back, was like, what happened? He was reading this clip from the morning. And he looked at me, he says, I hope I can, I'm not going to swear too much, but he looked at me and said, if and until you're elected five times to the Senate, I don't ever want to see your goddamn name in the newspaper again. (laughs) And I said, yes, sir. And cooler has prevailed. And he he came to realize at some point, you know, that again, if he wanted an effective press secretary, I couldn't just be hiding behind anonymity, not if I was going to serve as an uh, effective spokesperson uh, for him. For Senator Reid, I, I still love that story. It just was a classic Reid. Uh, so it was after the when when former President Bush lost, and he was very kind, very gracious, and invited Senator Reid uh, down to the White House for one last meeting. Well, I guess the predicate for this is in the six months leading up to the election, Reid had become a Fierce opponent of the president, called him all sorts of names, largely over his handling of the so-called war on terror and the war in Iraq. But again, he was very classy. Invite read down for one last meeting in the White House, and so we went into the Oval Office, and there was a so-called spray at the top of the, the meeting where invited the press, the, the press in to film, uh, get a little fir- film, try try to ask a, a couple of questions. Reed and the Senator Reid and the President are sitting, you know, where they usually sit in the Oval Office, right by the fireplace. And all of a sudden, the door, the side door opens, and Senator President Bush's dog, Barney, comes walking in. And Senator Reed, without missing a beat, turns to the President. She goes, Your dog's fat. Now, it is factually true the dog is fat. But then I will never remember walking uh, out of the White House with him right by the colonnade there. I looked at him and I said, why did you say that? And in just classic Reed, he looked at me, shrugged his shoulders and said, he was fat. (laughs) It was factually true. Senator Reed was great to work for, but he had a very, he was unlike most politicians. He simply didn't care what came out of his mouth as he said to me more than once, even more so, he it was unspoken between us. It was it was like, Jim, it's your job to clean this stuff up. And that I tried to do.
1: Well, it's you know, it's a good thing that he, he had you because he got mostly good press when, when you were on the beat. And look, I can totally understand the idea that for a guy who put himself through college boxing and made his way up by taking on the mob, I, didn't he get his car bombed at one point? I mean, the, I, he yes. was not afraid of anything and so uh, it's it's it makes total sense the, the the story makes total sense well look i gotta get you out of here i could i could do war stories from the lions of the senate with you literally all day and i'm sure our listeners would absolutely love it but you have other important things to do so jim manley thank you so much for joining us on beyond politics my pleasure matt had a fun time